Hello, this is Tony Blazer, back with another podcast for the Motocross Vault. And what this one's going to cover is one of my classic magazines. In this case, we're going to go back and look at the September 1985 issue of Motocross Action. Now, I realize this is a audio medium, uh, but to accommodate anybody who might want to follow along, I've actually uploaded this entire issue in PDF form to my website, and that is themotocrossvault.com. If you go there, you can download uh, the entire issue, read along, read it at your leisure. If you want to follow along, uh, feel free as well. Uh, I know some people like to listen to this kind of thing, even though you can't see visually, but yeah, go back and look at it later if you'd like. Like I said, I try to be as accommodating as I can, but on a podcast, obviously, there's not a visual element. I did do a video version as well on my YouTube, though, if you'd like to watch it there. Uh, but anyway, I like putting this here because I know, like myself, I like to listen to podcasts quite a bit in the car, and these days people are looking for stuff to do, so... In any case, if you like this, let me know. I'll put, I did some other issues as well. Maybe I'll put them up in podcast form uh, as well if you like this. So just let me know. Uh, so here is the 1985 September issue of Motocross Action. All right, on the cover here we have, as I said earlier, an amazing photo of Ron Lachine and his incredible RC125 works bike. This vi uh, picture was shot by Fran Kuhn, and I think it takes place at the Las Vegas uh, Motocross National, which is covered in this issue. I've always loved this uh, this cover, basically for the bike. This uh, RC was so cool. If you look at the the left side here, is a dinky little radiator, and then the right hat side is a much larger one. These bikes were just so trick, so custom. Really, not a thing on the bike shares anything with the uh, standard, you know, CR125. It's a completely custom bike. This was this was the last year for the works bikes in America. In '86, they started the production rule, which meant machines like this were just no longer legal for. Uh, used in the United States, which is a real bummer. These bikes were so cool, and certainly added a lot to the, uh, you added a lot to the color of the races. I could certainly understand, you know, at the time, uh, manufacturers like Yamaha were struggling financially back in Japan, and they just didn't have the funds to compete with Honda and these incredible RCs. But uh, the bikes just were so cool, and I, I got to think it was, you know, certainly added to the appeal of the the races at the time. Uh, Lachine here is uh, wearing some really sweet RC gear. I mean, I'm sorry, wearing some really sweet uh, JT gear. Really good-looking bike, really good-looking gear combo for sure. There was also, as you can see at the top here, there's also a mention of the 500 shootout that will take place and a incredible killer 125KX for a uh, measly $3,000, which, of course, was a lot more. That was a, you know, uh, a new 125 in 85 is probably about $1,900, $2,000, so you're basically adding 50% to the cost of it in mods. So it's pretty expensive at the time, although it doesn't sound so today. On the uh, inside cover here, you have a Fox Racing ad. You can see the uh, Fox Racing ad's kind of paying homage to uh, Mammy Vice, which, if you're not familiar, was a TV show in the early 80s. Uh, had this very kind of pastel look, and it's clearly kind of an homage to that. Never was a big fan of these Fox Racing boots. The Comp 2 boots are the first Fox Racing boots that really caught my eye. They were great-looking stuff. I did have a pair of these paw tackers, though. Love these gloves. They were great-looking uh, gloves at the time. Still looks good now, really, to be honest with you. Uh, put out a new version of this now. It probably would sell, although uh, people now don't, aren't really big fans of uh, uh, that much protection, to be honest. Here on page three, we get the table of contents and a look at what we're going to be covering in this issue. The uh, open-class shootout uh, for 1985 is in here. This was uh, By this point, the 500s are already starting to lose a little bit of their luster. They were still getting all the modern technology, though, uh, for the most part. The only thing they really, uh, Honda didn't bother to put a power valve on theirs, but uh, most of the other stuff was still getting trickled down to the 500s. They weren't quite being neglected yet, but that transition was going to take place in a few years after this. Uh, there's, there's also a test of the 1985 Husqvarna 250CR. Uh, I, I always thought this Husqvarna was a really cool looking machine. In fact, I picked it as one of my 
uh, best looking Husqvarna's or Husqvarna's. I always have trouble with that. Uh, Husqvarna's of all time in uh, my top 10 list I just did on the channel a little bit back, a little while back. You're going to see there's a couple of articles on the Grand Prix races. Uh, back in the 80s, the Grand Prix were much more of a um, mainline content in motocross action and dirt bike and what have you. They they still had a fair amount of prestige at this point. We hadn't kind of started ignoring them like we did in the 90s. Um, nowadays, you probably wouldn't see a single article uh, in an issue. Certainly maybe only one or two articles, maybe in a year in motocross action that where they talk about the GPs. They just don't uh, have the same level of interest now that they did once upon a time. We also get uh, a little bit of a test of some white power forks, um, which are now WP forks. Of course, we don't call them white power anymore for obvious reasons. Uh, there's also some mini cycle coverage, uh, interview with Danny Magoo Chandler, uh, and a bunch of other various stuff we'll get to here. On uh, page four and five, we get a ad for the 1986 ATC 250R, by far the coolest three-wheeler of all time. I'm personally not a fan of three-wheelers in general in terms of actually riding them. I love looking at them. I think they're cool. I find they're very interesting. Uh, my brother-in-law had one when we were young. I've ridden an ATC 250R quite a bit. It's it's fun, but I always find the three-wheeler thing a little bit dicey. I, I crashed his three-wheelers so many damn times. Seems like every time I got on the damn thing, it spit me off. So uh, my I definitely have a love-hate relationship with ATCs. I think they look cool and they're... They're interesting, but they, they, they like to hurt me, so I'm going to stay away from them if I can help it. Uh, on the next page, we have an ad for uh, City CD Boots. I never have known how to say this. Um, obviously, I think it's an Italian brand, uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how you say it, but uh, they were always kind of cool boots. I always like the ones that came out a little bit after this with these little uh, shock absorbers on the inside of them. I never had a pair of these. Uh, you'll see even at this point, even premium quality boots have Velcro for closures. That was you know, Velcro kind of came into the vogue in the early 80s. I had, you know, Velcro closures on my tennis shoes. Uh, it was pretty common at the time. And even high-end boots uh, used Velcro there for a while. It was certainly a lot easier to get them on and off than it was the, old, the you know, the earlier, like, full-bore boots which had, like, 22 buckles you had to buckle. So, uh, the um, I think the Velcro was, it was decent. Uh, I think once you got them full of mud, it was maybe a bit of an issue. But uh, in general, they were real popular for about 10 years there. On the table of, uh, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, on the on the main jet. Now, this is a column on page seven by Roland Hines, who was the publisher uh, of the magazine at the time. And uh, this is a very interesting, uh, if you actually sit and read it, he's talking about the motocross, the, the actually the motocross and trophy designations at the time. You have to keep in mind for the first, I don't know, 30 or so years, um, actually, I guess for the first 20 or so years, the motocross designation was just a 500 class event. Uh, then they added the 250s later, and then eventually they added a, a 125 event too, which most people just didn't pay much attention to back then. But in 1981, when we uh, basically shocked the world and won the first motocross designations for America, we won both the trophy and the motocross. We won the 500s and the 250s. Then we won again in 82, 83, and 84. And uh, this article here, Roland is talking about the Europeans kind of basically having sour grapes about the fact that America is winning now and uh, wanted to change the rules up for 1985. This 85 is the first year where they merged the 250s and 500s into one event, which is basically the same format we see now. And uh, Roland is basically saying this is an idiotic idea, and how would you be able to tell what's going on, and how stupid it is. I mean, time would prove that that's not true, that basically they used the, the same exact setup for the next 35 years, uh, but at the time he's kind of whining and moaning about how stupid it is and how it's not going to work out for uh, the Europeans, because we're going to kick their ass anyway. It turns out we did win in 85, although the best guy at that race was uh, actually uh, Britain's uh, Dave Thorpe, 
who uh, pretty much whooped everybody's ass. Um, but Team USA won. It's a it's a team sport, obviously. Uh, it's the best overall score for a, a country. So the fact that Thorpe was the fastest guy didn't necessarily mean Great Britain won. Uh, so USA won, but Thorpe did him proud. People forget that now. He gets a kind of gets a bad rap because. Uh, he got had some problems in '86 when uh, he lost out to Johnny O'Meara on his 125. Thorpe had some problems with his brake, and it was a very hilly track. And not taking anything away from Johnny O'Meara, but I think he gets a little too much too grief for that. Uh, Thorpe, I think, gets a lot of disrespect and doesn't get the uh, level of appreciation he deserves in general because of uh, some of the crap that Motocross Action and Jody said over the years. Here on page eight, we have Jody's box, a column which still appears in the magazine to this day. Jody is. Got to be one of the most interesting people in the sport. Um, it's a guy I've never met personally, never talked to him, but uh, I'm always fascinated by his, uh, basically his attitude towards things. Uh, he's certainly, uh, in this article, talking about how he was uh, found by Who's Who magazine or something as the uh, one of the 10 most influential people in motocross. And in the 80s, I certainly would agree with him. Like I said, motocross action was the Bible for a long time in motocross, uh, in the days before the internet and what have you. And his opinion certainly carried a lot of weight. Um, he certainly uh, had a lot to say on the what what things got advertised, what uh, bikes got uh, highlighted in the magazines, and he was a very powerful guy. Still is to this day. It it really is amazing when you consider. I think he started this magazine in the mid seventies, around I don't know seventy four, seventy five, and uh, he's still there to this day. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, in these days when people change jobs every five minutes. Um, He's been there for one hell of a long time. I'm curious to see how the magazine, what what direction it'll take when he finally does step down. But um, these these Jody's boxes in general are pretty pretty inane reading. I'm never a giant fan of. Them. I usually skip past them, but uh, uh, I do admire the fact that he's been around so long and able to keep doing it. Uh, on the next page here, we have an ad for uh, Simmons or Simons. I'm actually not sure how that's said. I've read it a million times, but never heard anybody say it. In Olin's uh, shock, uh, in the early '80s, mid '80s. It was still common to actually replace your shock. You didn't get it uh, necessarily revalved or, you know, rebuilt. Uh, some of the shocks weren't easily rebuilt, and it's, a lot of times it was just better to go with an aftermarket unit. And, uh, you know, you had companies like White, White Brothers uh, offering all kinds of suspension upgrades, and Olin's offered a Swedish uh, high-end shock for your bike. These things were pretty expensive at the time, but... I know a lot of people went with them as an upgrade, and you guys saw guys like uh, you know Brock Glover and Rick Johnson here running them on their um, their uh, production-based Yamahas. Uh, the kit the forks here, the Simmons Andy Cavitator fork kit, uh, was also a popular upgrade on uh, forks at the time. This is the days before cartridge forks were around. There's a issue with uh, cavitation, which is like you know frothing of the fluid with air in it, and the forks which would degrade. Uh, the performance of them and this Andy Cav kit was a popular mod to kind of uh, mitigate that and uh, make the fork perform better. Um, on the next page here, we have a great deal of information about Husqvarna. Um, again, Husqvarna was still Swedish at this point. Uh, Kajiva didn't buy them until 1987, uh, but they they weren't in terms of motocross at least. They really weren't a top level contender pretty much anymore. Uh, you had Mickey Diamond riding it, but he was probably the top guy here in America. You, know, you had guys like Hawk and Carlquist, I think, was probably still on Husqvarna's at this point. Now, actually, hell, he might have already been on a... He's probably on a Yamaha now. I, I don't even know who the top guy was. Maybe uh, Jorgen Nielsen or somebody over in uh, over in Europe. But uh, here in America, they were kind of a bit player. Uh, in the Enduro world, though, you see this um, you know, Husqvarna, or Husqvarna 430 Auto. They were still really big, powerful uh, force in off-road Enduro. I think at this point, they were still... I don't know, 12 or 13 year in a row champions in the National Enduro Series. 
Uh, Dick Burleson had been kicking butt. I don't think they lost that title until maybe Kevin Hines in 1987. So uh, they were still a force to be reckoned with uh, in the off-road world. They also had this all-new four-stroke coming, the new um, big, what is it, a 510, I think it ended up being, with the cool dual exhaust. Uh, Husqvarna was one of the brands that actually stuck with the you know the four-strokes for motocross and stuff when the Japanese you know really weren't interested in pursuing it. And they were kind of obviously clearly ahead of the curve on that. Um, they kind of, uh, when, when Husqvarna was sold to Kojiva, uh, the engineers, their four-stroke engineers actually started Husaberg and uh, kept that going, which would eventually be bought by KTM in the late nineties. On the uh, next page, on page 11, we have an ad for Sidewinder sprockets. Now, um, this double cross, uh, sprocket was a neat idea. It allowed you to change your gearing without taking the uh, wheel off. Uh, if you've ever had to swap your sprocket off, it's a pain in the ass to take the whole rear of the bike off, especially back in these days when they had uh, drum brakes. That was a real pain, too. The drum brake wasn't always easy to get in and out. And this allowed you to do that. I don't think it... Uh, I think the main reason it didn't catch on was they were problems with them breaking. They turned out to be um, fragile, is my understanding. But I, I never had a set of them myself. Sidewinder, once upon a time, was like the gold standard. If you're talking about uh, somebody wanting a high-end sprocket, they didn't get a Rinthal, they didn't get like a Sunstar or something, they got like a Sidewinder. It was like their chains and sprockets were considered like the uh, kind of the top of the line stuff. And they were the early ones here with the little grooves to let the mud out. I don't know whether that actually did a whole lot. It certainly helped marketing-wise. It was a good move for them to do that in that case. Uh, on the next page, we have an ad for DG Performance, which at this point was still doing a lot of stuff for motocross. DG was a major power in the 70s. And uh, somewhere in the 80s, they kind of transitioned to ATVs. They really got out of doing a whole lot of motocross stuff. And maybe, I don't know, 86, 87 was kind of the last time you started to see them uh, really pushing the uh, the motocross side of their business. They became a really big power in ATV racing, though. Uh, you saw it on all the top guy, all the top ATV guys ran DG stuff. And I had some DG stuff. I had a, a Yamaha Blaster in 88, and I had DG, you know, Nerf bars and all that shit on there. It was a... Uh, um, real popular in the ATV world. I don't know if they're still around. I got to be honest. I'm not sure if they are. I, um, I'm not really into ATV racing and stuff, so I'm not sure. But um, DG for a long time was a uh, real mainstay in the motocross world. All right, here on page 14, we have the Ask the MXperts uh, bit. I actually love this um, in the current magazine. It's one of my favorite little uh, tidbits to read. This is very different, though. It doesn't appear to be really answering writer que or reader questions like they do in the current one. It's more like just telling you a few little general tips. Uh, check out the Kabi uh, kind of setup. Ross Pedersen is running on his Suzuki there to keep his boot from catching uh, on the reservoir in the upper right there. It's not the most factory setup for sure. Um, at the bottom here, you have DG Performance again, uh, selling carburetors. K this Kahin flat slide carb was brand new in 1985, and it was a hot setup there for if you wanted to upgrade the performance on a lot of bikes. That was uh, what a lot of people went with. Uh, mail entries, general stuff. I mean, I, don't, I usually don't really bother reading these for the most part. Just people asking. This one, Nimnut asks if uh, they come out every month. The magazine comes out, and they tell them to subscribe. And, oh, here's here's Carla Carquist up here. That answers the question. Team Yamaha. So he was riding for Yamaha in 1985 or so. On the far right, you have High Flight Seats. This is a brand I'm not sure if they're still around. High Flight was uh, kind of a competitor to seat racing. Um, my impression was whenever I looked at the High Flight seats, they always seemed like they weren't as nice a quality as the seat in terms of the graphics and what have you. I, I don't know, though. I never had a High Flight seat myself, and it seemed like they always came with like taller foam, and I wasn't really a big fan of that, so I, I never actually bought this. I had, I've had plenty of uh, seat racing products over the years, but never a High Flight. Here on page 16, we have uh, a little uh, mention of the ATK uh, ATAC 
torque eliminator system, which is a kind of a neat idea they came up with. The horse lightener came up with in the 80s here to uh, reduce chain torque on the rear suspension. You know, the torque of the motor actually has a great effect on the way the, the actual suspension behaves. And this uh, kind of a, I don't know, mousetrap type looking thing here supposedly took the chain torque away. I actually um, have never ridden one on a normal motorcycle. I have ridden an ATK. My buddy of mine was an importer of those kind of oddball bikes. He, um, that's how I got to ride a Kajiva. Actually, you see a Kajiva in the lower left. He had a Kajiva one time in the late 80s. I rode that, and he had a I had an ATK 250 as well. I got to ride that. Um, I thought the bike was very different. It just felt different. It, I don't know if it was good, bad. Um, it was just a very different feel at the time, and uh, I couldn't really tell if the ATAC torque limiter did much, but I know a lot of the magazines swore by its uh, function for sure. You have O'Neill boots down here at the lower uh, lower right on page 16. Never had a pair of those. I never was a big fan of those O'Neill um, gloves either. Uh, if you saw my history of O'Neill racing, you know uh, some of the gear here in the earlier 80s wasn't my favorite, but it definitely got way better here. Actually, right about 85, 86 is when they started getting much better. Um, just general stuff here. There's a little thing on a, a pipe you could get, Honda chain lube, and some high point goggles. Nothing too interesting. Uh, here on page 18, we have the um, like a review of the white power forks you could get for $600, a whopping $600, which today doesn't sound like a whole lot for a set of forks. I guess back then that's probably like $2,000 in today's money, if I'm guessing. Uh, they're putting it on a 85YZ. This is a bike that needed a set of forks. Holy Christ, I had an 85YZ250, and those forks were just terrible marshmallows. They were awful. Um, and um, I imagine this was probably a, a substantial upgrade. I know these... A white power force could be made to work very well if you got somebody who had some knowledge setting them up. And you got to figure out this is to have upside down forks on your bike in 1985 is pretty trick. I mean, in in reality, I don't know that the upside down forks actually worked better um, than the right side up ones. But at the time, it was the new trick work style style thing, and a lot of people wanted it for sure. You have an ad here for Chaparral, which is still in business, been around a long time. I used to love the Chaparral catalogs in the 80s and 90s. They always had like pretty much everything. I live in Virginia. There really is no uh, huge aftermarket shop here to go to to find stuff like you could at Chaparral. I think if you live live in Cali there, you could probably go into Chaparral and buy anything off the shelf. And uh, you're just not going to find that in a local shop here in VA. So it was cool that you could uh, go to Chaparral and uh, get all that stuff if you needed it. Uh, Tough Racing here on the next page. Another uh, brand. I actually never ordered anything from Tough, but they always had some cool stuff. They always had... Uh, Kind of uh, one-off versions of like Axo Sports stuff. Uh, Axo Sports here ju is just kind of catching on in 1985, so you don't see it here. But um, you know, basically custom colors and stuff. And their their bikes were always cool. They had those orange Kawasaki's. Uh, Keith Bone was running and stuff. It's definitely a um, a cool, cool uh, kind of high performance shop. On the next page here, we have a Moto Quiz where they're asking a little bit about uh, could you name these guys. Um, let's see, I can name, looks like, uh, Ron Lachine. <laughs> I don't know most of these other dudes, though. Oh, I guess others, um, uh, Pierre Carsmakers here on the upper right. Uh, Honda Racing, Honda Line, uh, apparel down here from, uh, North Hollywood. Honda Line Apparel, this was never the greatest stuff. I'm thinking if you're concerned about style, you probably weren't gonna, uh, pop for this, uh, Team Honda stuff. It definitely wasn't the greatest uh, but <laughs> I suppose if that's all you could find, it's all you could find. Boyson Reeds were like the super uh, popular upgrade. I remember when I was a kid, we all thought that if you put a set of Boyson Reeds on your bike, it was going to give you like 10 horsepower or something crazy. It was like, oh my God. And the first, pe first thing people would ask you when you told me you got a bike, oh, you got some Boyson Reeds in that thing? 
I don't think they actually did a whole lot. Maybe it helped a little bit with response. It certainly wasn't the uh, performance upgrade. I always thought it was funny because you, you read these tests and you think that a, a pipe or a set of reeds or something, uh, the magazine would make you believe it's like, holy crap, night and day difference. But my experience uh, trying many, many, many aftermarket things is most of the time it doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, sometimes a pipe will move the power around a little bit, but it's not like any kind of crazy night and day difference for sure. And, uh, I mean, like I said, they were popular mods. They they were effective, but I don't think they uh, probably made as big a difference as a lot of people thought they, were, they would. Uh, certainly not young kids like me, anyway. All right, starting on page 24, we get one of my absolute favorite parts of any magazine, whether it's 1985 or today, the uh, shootout. This one covers the 500 class of 1985, and as you can see, it's a pretty big one. It, it has a total of six bikes in it, uh, three uh, Europeans and uh, three Japanese bikes. Uh, a few years later, the 500 class would be all but gone, but here in the uh, mid-80s, it was still pretty strong. Suzuki had bowed out in 84, if I remember right here in the U.S. at least. I think 85 Suzukis were still available internationally, but uh, here in the U.S., we didn't get an 84 RM500. Uh, they did have the all-new CR500 this year. Uh, the uh, YZ490 was pretty much a retreaded uh, 84 model in white plastic. The 85KX was uh, new. It had, I believe, this is the first year made for the KIPP system on the KX500. And then you have uh, the Husqvarna, Husqvarna uh, C, uh, 500CR, the Kajiva WMX500, and the KTM500 motocross. Uh, pretty, pretty diverse uh, group of bikes. Uh, kind of interesting takeaways. I love these old shootouts. This is when, to me at least, the shootouts from here... Until the mid '90s, or when the when they were the best, there was a lot more information. Somewhere in the early 2000s, MXA they basically would do like a one-page blurb, like a little tiny, little half-assed uh, deal where they wouldn't even know tell you much about it. Uh, I hated that era, and th these are much more thorough. Here on the uh, page uh, 26, you also get a ad for Hallman USA, which is currently Thor. Uh, Thor stands for Torsten Hallman Original Racewear. And uh, Hallman USA was the name of the company before it went to Thor. And the uh, Vertibelt, which was a um, obviously a uh, kidney belt, which unfortunately has also gone out of uh, style for some reason. Apparently kidneys don't get pounded anymore like they used to. Uh, so anyway, the, a couple of takeaways from this. I find it interesting reading it now that uh, the top power output is the YZ490. And, you know, people now, at least in their minds, me included, think of the YZ490s as being, like, outdated and old-fashioned and, you know, hunks of shit by the time they uh, the bikes went liquid cool. But uh, Motocross Action picked it as the most powerful engine. I've actually never ridden an 85 uh, YZ490. I had the, uh, like I said earlier, I had an 85 YZ250, which was... Honest to God, one of the fastest 250s I've ever owned. I mean, that thing was a rocket. Uh, the rest of the bike was a hunk of shit, but the, the motor was ridiculous. And I think that's kind of where where it stands here in the 500 as well. The motor was really fast, but uh, the rest of the bike was a bit subpar. Forks and what have you weren't very good. Um, the Honda this year was a, was a real fast beast of a machine. This is the first year they went to liquid cooling on the CR500, and the motor was pretty unmanageable. Um, as you can see in the power manageability, it finished last here in sixth place. Uh, the Kajiva uh, wasn't a real powerhouse, but it was the easiest to ride. You know, that usually kind of goes hand, especially in 500s. Max power, not necessarily the most important thing on a big bike like that. Uh, a couple of other interesting things. Uh, the best forks in the class were the white power units on the KTM. This was the only uh, only bike with upside-down forks then. And they were very advanced, as I said, for the time. Had a great deal more adjustability than some of the others. And pretty impressive. Um, I, I Like I said, I love this. There's a lot of detail in the shootout. They tell you everything from how the forks work to the brakes and the shock. And really gives you a good uh, rundown of all the machines. I, I love these shootouts. And um, I, 
I, I would say the shootouts have gotten better. You know, if you look read them now, they're they're better than they were in the mid two thousands, early two thousands when they were really were just terrible. Uh, but to me, at least, this era is the best for that kind of stuff. One other thing of note you'll notice here that uh, you won't see today is the fact that at the end of the test on page twenty nine, it jumps all the way to page seventy four. I, I this is a weird thing that magazines did back then where. It, they don't have the whole article in one place. Again, I, I think that must have been done to force you to flip through a bunch of other ads uh, to see the end of the test. I assume they, hey, maybe I just wanted to read this for the shootout, and now I have to look at um, a bunch of other ads in order to get to the end. So it's a marketing trick that I always thought was total BS, and at some point they got away from it. They don't do it anymore, so I guess enough people got pissed that they got over that. Um, on the next page here, we have a ad for Downers Grove Yamaha, uh, DG... Yeah, DGY. It was, they were a sponsor of uh, Doug Henry in, uh, I guess, 91, and I think Steve Lampson, maybe in 89, 90, uh, when he was uh, on a uh, YZ360 and an RM. Uh, I assume they're still around. I've never bought anything from Downers Grove, Yamaha, but they were certainly you know, a pretty high-profile team there in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, on page pages 32 and 33, we get a test of a hopped-up DMC KX125. Uh, DMC stands for David Miller Concepts. David Miller was one of the, um, kind of the Mitch Payton, actually maybe a little more out there than Mitch. He was always kind of, uh, pushing the envelope in terms of designing things and had some really trick machines. You can see this thing has like a work style swing arm on it. It looks like something would have been on Jeff Ward's bike. A DMC bike was, um, more exotic than what you would see in like on a pro circuit bike today or something. They had, they really went all out with some of these things and they sponsored guys like Jeff Matasevich and uh, some other guys at the time. Uh, they, they were definitely some of the coolest bikes you could get if you were riding a Kawasaki or something. About the only thing I ever ran from uh, David Miller was this Kip spacer you'll see here in the middle of the page. That was a little uh, a little spacer that would essentially increase the volume of your Kips, which was the Kawasaki integrated power valve system. It had an exhaust resonator built into it. The Kips is interesting in that it was the first... First power valve designed to integrate both the ATAC system of the Honda, which was an exhaust resonator, and the uh, variable exhaust port functionality of like the Yamaha power valve system into one unit. And uh, pretty much all the two-stroke power valve systems today kind of run that uh, run that basic theory of the best way to get good power of a two-stroke is to combine both of those technologies. And Kawasaki did that uh, here in 1985. And looks like uh, Dave was really on top of this Kips thing. I ran one of these on my 87 KX125, and it definitely made a difference. Uh, you can see here the strut. Um, these are like 85s had these adjustable struts, uh, which is like the little bar they call the dog bone linkage. They had a very interesting linkage at the time, and uh, you could get you could actually uh, change the length of them. It was kind of neat in that like a modern day you'd have to buy a whole new link. Back then you could actually adjust it, uh, which was pretty cool. But they were prone to bending if you were real hard on the thing. So what's kind of amazing is you could spend you know three thousand dollars and have this incredibly trick machine. A, a bike like this now would you probably spend $20,000 to have Pro Circuit do something like this now. It's pretty crazy. Starting on page 34 here, we get a actually a surprisingly great article, a really good article. I actually went through and read this whole thing again. I haven't read it in many years, but um, this damn thing is really good, actually, talking about how to get started racing motocross. Uh, I was actually getting started, I think my race, my first race, maybe 87, a few years after this. I was just dreaming of uh, racing in 85. I didn't have um, a real motocross bike yet or anything maybe a year or two away from getting one, but uh, this is a great article on the things that you should do when you're first starting out. It's it's actually just as relevant today as it was then. I don't think as many people race probably as they did in 85. That's one of the things that's kind of interesting. Uh, it wasn't There weren't professional practice tracks in my area back in the mid-80s. It was, you know, if you wanted to ride a real track, you had to go, you had to go race. 
Um, I think in SoCal it was certainly probably different, but here in Virginia it just wasn't, there weren't that many tracks, or still aren't that many tracks available, so uh, they weren't open for open practice midweek and what have you. That's more of a modern uh, thing. So you had to kind of throw yourself right into the wolves there. I know my first race, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. None of my friends raced. Um, buddy of mine, we threw, our, threw my bike in my dad's truck, and we just went, and I said, well, I guess we'll figure this out. I had never been to a race. I'd never seen one in person when I went to the first thing. Uh, it was just kind of those, uh, <laughs> you kind of throw yourself in there. And this is a great article about uh, everything from, you know, getting your bike ready and being smart about not waiting to the last minute to get all that stuff done to what happens if you get lapped. And it's just, it's really actually very good. It's worth reading now. Um, they should put this on their damn website. Uh, it's, a, it's a good article and definitely helpful to first time, first time racers. And I, I recommend reading it. And like I said, I, I am going to post this entire uh, this entire magazine to my website so you can download it and read it at your leisure. Um, on uh, page 39 here we get an ad for high point boots. These things, man, I would pay some serious money for a set of brand new high point boots. Now they were actually just Alpine stars, I believe. High point, if you know Larry Myers, you ever watched motocross, I'm sorry, Motor World back in the day or some of the early 90s uh, motocross racing on TV. Larry Myers was one of the announcers there, uh, but he was also the guy behind High Point. I think one of the first guys to bring Alpine stars here into the U.S. Alpine stars have been around since I think the late 60s. I think they originally were doing like ski boots and things, but anyway, they were one of the pioneers there in motocross boots and uh, these uh, really cool superstar uh, twos are um, famously Jody and MXA always ran them, and they're just cool. They're iconic, kind of remind me of uh, Bob Han. I think he always ran these as well. Just a cool, timeless boot. If I had them now, I, I would not wear them. I would want to keep them in my garage as a keepsake, but they're really cool boots to be sure, and uh, still still look uh, really badass in a timeless way. Starting on page 40, we have a look back at the uh, 125 uh, World Championships. Again, uh, you're going to see way more coverage in these uh, old magazines than you're going to see in a modern one about the GPs. I got to be honest, I I watch sometimes the highlights. I don't follow the GPs to any great extent. I never really have. Even back then, you know, I was aware of them a little bit. I'd see, hey, who won and who didn't win. You know, certainly followed it a little bit when some of the Americans were doing a little bit better. About the only time I've actually watched all the GP races uh, in a modern context is when Ryan Villapoto went over there a few years ago. I, I subscribed to it and was uh, watching them, and then that didn't end very well. So in general, I just kind of have a cursory look, but they certainly looked uh, much more intently at it back in these days. You're going to see so much more coverage in these magazines back then. In uh, the next page here, we get a ad for JT Racing. Uh, of note is that cool pink, uh, which is, a you know, I always liked, you know, Dayglo pink, the pink that would come out, I don't know, maybe two or three years after this, the neon pink stuff that uh, you would have seen like Bradshaw wearing and Fox and stuff. Love that. This weird kind of a, I don't know, a baby pink color that JT had. I definitely was not a fan of it. And then pink with red was a strange choice. You have to admire Brock Glover for having the the balls to put this stuff on. Because I, I imagine he got some looks when he rolled out there in this pink gear. It was definitely a bold look. Uh, this stuff's timeless. These um, JT uh, shoulder pads are badass. Uh, these uh, helmets are really cool. Just a really uh, great year for JT. JT was kicking ass at this point, and uh, they were by far the top brand you could buy. Uh, on the next page here, we get some coverage of the uh, 125, 250, and 500 National Championship. Remember, we had all three back then. This is, I believe, Scott Burnworth is no number 39, I believe, is who this is on the left. Uh, and then you have a picture of uh, Bob Hanna at the bottom right and Eddie Hicks. And some other guys there in the bottom uh, bottom left. This was, I think, Las Vegas. Yeah, the Las Vegas National. Uh, I imagine that was uh, hot and dusty and crappy. Probably looked a lot like uh, you know one of the SoCal rounds we had a few years ago out in the desert. There, I would imagine. I I've actually never seen footage of this. It was real hard to uh, real hard to find any footage of these old races back then. It wasn't like now. You know, you can see some of the 
you know, there are VHSs available, the Supercross races, but there's really almost no content of the Nationals. I would love to have, uh, you know, if somebody has it, some National Championship wrap-up of these motocross races back in the day, but uh, you just can't find them, unfortunately. It's a bummer. We have an ad here for Midwest Action Cycle. Uh, these were in all the magazines. Uh, I don't know if Midwest Action Cycle is still around. They they were really popular in the magazines. Like I said, you, you're going to find with these ads in any of these mid-'80s magazines. Um, they're all over the place, and... Uh, I definitely, I think I might have ordered something for my RM one at one point from this thing because, you know, like I said, they were very ubiquitous. They seemed to have everything at the time, uh, but I don't know if they're still around. After this, on page 50 and 51, we get some more coverage of the GPs. Again, two articles in one magazine, pretty remarkable for certainly would be today. Uh, this one's covering, you can see Magoo here on the left. Um, Magoo had lost his ride in uh, America. He had, had ride, been riding for Factory Honda for a couple of years. Had some certainly some good finishes. Famously kicked everybody's butt at the Motocross of those Nations, I think in 82, if I remember right off the top of my head. But he had uh, had a rough 84 season and went over to the GPs in 85 uh, on a KTM. He was riding for the factory KTM. Uh, that KTM had had some problems. I think, um, I remember reading another article at the time. He's talking about like the shock going bad and breaking on him. And uh, KTM just not being honest with him about the uh, the uh some of the problems with the components at the time. Uh, you know, again... You're only hearing one side of that story. I don't know what, what the other side of it would have been, but certainly he didn't have uh, the best year. I think he won at least one or two races. I, I'm pretty sure I have one on uh, tape, maybe the GP in France, uh, where he's uh, kicking butt on that KTM. So, you know, Magoo is an amazing guy to watch. If you haven't seen his DVD he did before he passed, there's a great DVD available talking about his life with some just incredible highlights. It's Obviously, it's bittersweet knowing what happened to him. And if you don't know, he was paralyzed not long after this, I believe. He crashed over a tabletop jump and uh, broke his neck and was paralyzed, which is just, you know, obviously, you know, if you're like me, your greatest fear when you get on a motorcycle is being paralyzed. I never really feared death, but I definitely feared, you know, ending up, you know, as a quadriplegic or something awful like that. Uh, so anyways, that happened to Magoo, obviously the end of his career. But uh, that video shows so many great scenes from, you know, when he was on the Superbikers and his his amazing career. He was a... Uh, a one-of-a-kind guy and so thrilling to watch, and it's really sad that uh, it ended up like that for him. Here on pages 56 and 57, we have a look back at uh, some mini racing. Uh, really cool. If you look, here's a, kind of a who's who of mini stars at the time in the bottom left. You're going to see see guys looks like maybe Denny Stevenson and some others. you got a picture of Jimmy Button right above. Uh, I'm sure if you zoom in close, you can find a lot of guys that turned out to be some pretty big stars. It's always interesting to look back at these um, kids when they are in the 80s, and sometimes you got guys like Rick Simmett who were really kicking everybody's ass there for a while, and uh, you thought were for sure it was going to turn out to be something, and then they turned pro, didn't really work out for them. Uh, and then you have a guy maybe like a Jeremy McGrath who had really a pretty innocuous, uh, you know, not that spectacular amateur career, and then uh, turns out to be uh, really a world beater. A perfect example of that is a guy like Ryan Dungey who really was getting his butt kicked by Mike Alessi every weekend. Ryan Villapoto too. They both. Uh, we're no match for Leslie and the amateurs, but when it turned pro, it kind of flipped that script on its head. Here on page 58, you have interviews, a couple little short interviews with some guys in the uh, in the uh, racing at the time. Pekka Vekkonen, who would end up being the 1985 World Motocross uh, Champ in the 125 class, giving Kajiva its first ever uh, World Motocross title, and interestingly, the first 125 uh, World Motocross title won by a non-Japanese brand. Uh, at this point, I believe uh, every every 125 world title had been won by Suzuki, 
which uh, is pretty amazing when you think how 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 the mighty have fallen. How Suzuki was they were just so dominant in the seventies and eighties. They just kicked butt there in the mid seventies up until the early eighties, and then uh, kind of the they had a little bit of a rough patch in the mid-80s, but now, of course, the bottom's kind of falling out of that. So I hope they survive this nonsense going on now. I wouldn't be surprised if Suzuki goes under, you know, even irregardless of all of what's going on now. Uh, you have an interview with Mickey Diamond, who was riding for Husqvarna at the time. It wasn't yet riding for Honda. That would go come out a year later. Uh, Michele Rinaldi, who was a fast uh, Italian, uh, one of the fastest Italians at the time. And then Billy Frank, who was um, another kid that I think was pretty highly touted, but uh, didn't really turn out to do much in the pros, if I remember right. This is, you know, I'm a little fuzzy on what how his career went. I know he wasn't much of a star once he turned pro. On page 59, an ad for Kraus Racing, which is the company that actually put out the Sidewinder Sprockets we talked about earlier. Vic Kraus, interestingly enough, is uh, the guy who is known as Mr. Know-It-All. If you read Dirt Bike Magazine, um, I always loved Mr. Know-It-All's columns. They were very snarky and loved uh, picking, uh, making fun at everybody. And uh, he was the guy who actually owned Kraus Racing. I don't know if Vic's still around. I mean, he would have to be, gosh, he'd have to be 80 now, I would think. Maybe 90, who the hell knows? I mean, this, you're talking about he came, he was around in the early 70s, so... I don't know, Kraus Racing, again, I don't know if they're around either. I, I, I never actually uh, bought any of the pipes or anything. They had some crazy pipes in the mid-90s where you get them in different colors and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh, But they were around there for a while. Uh, on the next page, we have an ad for uh, HRP, which was Hanna Racing Products, much like Seven now with James Stewart. Uh, Bob Hanna had his own line of racing uh, gloves, and pretty much the best-known thing they had was a shoulder pad system, which basically Fox Racing copied with their Roost 2. One of the early ones that had like a suspended shoulder pads, like a like a football shoulder pad system. Uh, it was some pretty good-looking stuff. I, I I guess maybe it kind of fizzled out after uh, after Bob retired, but uh, it was actually pretty good stuff. I'm not sure why it didn't take off. Uh, we have an ad for O'Neill's Ultralight Boots. Um, I never had a set of these. Uh, not not terrible looking boots. They were definitely not my favorite. O'Neill did have some decent boots over the years, but uh, I never thought their boots were their strong point, to be sure. Here on page 62, we get an ad for a subscription to Motocross Action. Uh, I've subscribed to Motocross Action for, I don't know, probably since 1985, continuously, uh, every year. So I got all these magazines. A uh, huge fan of the magazine, always have been. And what is interesting to note here is the fact that your, a one-year subscription in 1985 cost you $15, which is the equivalent, again, of probably $50 to $60 now. And a, I bet you if you look up the current subscription rate, it's it's this or less. It might be less than this or at least the same. So it's pretty crazy the fact that uh, subscriptions haven't gone up at all. It's also probably why you don't have very many magazines anymore. The fact that it's just not a profitable business. All the ads moving online and then costs of distribution and printing and everything else. And the, just the sheer fact that it's uh, costless. Uh, I love physical magazines. Um, there's something of permanence to a physical media that just doesn't exist on the internet. Uh, my perfect example is Transworld Motocross. I, I I copied so many pictures over the years when they post, you know, and I'm so glad I saved them. I saved all those photos to my hard drive. You think, okay, yeah, Racer X is going to have it or Transworld is going to have this, and then one day they get bought out and that site is gone, kaputski, and you don't have access to any of that stuff anymore, and you may never see it again. So I'm glad I saved that. You know, these magazines, as long as I keep them safe, they're uh, you know they're going to be forever. And uh, the internet, as great as it is. You know, people think the the internet's forever. It's not. It's only as long as somebody hasn't flipped the switch and turned that stuff off. So um, anyway, I, I, enough of a tangent there. Lamenting the death of physical media. 
Uh, on the next page, on page 64, we get a test of the 1985 Husqvarna uh, 250CR. This bike was pretty modern for the time. They'd finally gone to a single shock. Everybody had gone to uh, single shocks like in 81. And Husqvarna was still producing dual shock bikes, I think, at least through 84. So they, they had gone to liquid cooling in 84, but it's still a dual shock, kind of a weird setup. And then in 85, they were kind of getting with it. I think this bike is a great looking machine. Again, it's probably my favorite uh, favorite Husqvarna in terms of looks. I love this. This and the 86 are great looking bikes. Performance, not great. The engine, if you read the test here, wasn't spectacular. It was kind of revvy, but not a lot of torque and just not the best bike. The frame's kind of weird. If you look at the frame here in the, on page 68 in the lower right, it's uh, the, the spars. It has a, Instead of having individual spars like most modern bikes, it has one giant spar in the middle. Uh, you know, Husqvarna, they went their own way. It was, it was certainly not a copy of the Japanese, uh, for better or worse. It turns out worse, because uh, they, they went under pretty, uh, not long after this, they were bought out by Kajiva. They, I don't know. Actually, I assume they would have went under if they weren't bought out. I don't know. So many of the Europeans were having trouble at this time. It was uh, not a great, not a great time to be a European uh, motorcycle manufacturer in the mid-80s. Um, on page 66, just want to Briefly mentioned an ad for Pro Circuit here. Uh, this is kind of really when Pro Circuit was just getting ready to kind of take off. Uh, they had been actually a Husqvarna, Husqvarna, I have so much trouble with that damn name, Husqvarna dealer, and they'd been Anaheim Hus uh, Husqvarna Pro Circuit, I think, uh, for many years. And uh, the thing that really kind of took them off was in 86, uh, Rick Johnson had ran, uh, would end up running their pipes on his factory Honda when he switched from Yamaha to Honda. And uh, that really put Pro Circuit on the map and kind of gave them a trajectory where they, they got a whole lot more, a uh, whole lot more press and uh, kind of gave them some, le some legitimacy, certainly, that uh, helped kind of propel them to the powerhouse they are today. On the next page here, we have a, you know, a little bit of wrap-up of the Husqvarna test. Uh, FMF ad. Uh, FMF was around in 1985 as well. The Flying Machine Factory. Uh, they had had, I think they had a couple of iterations over the years. Uh, Donnie Emler had had FMF, and then I think he closed it or changed it to something else. I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but and then brought FMF back. Uh, I should do a little research on this. Probably a story there to be had. Um, on the right here, we have Honda of North Hollywood. Again, you see these ads fairly common in the mid-80s. I don't know uh, if they're still around. I'm not sure. Uh, down the bottom left there, if you've never seen uh, drum brakes, those little things there are brake shoes. Uh, so that's what we would run inside a drum brake. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you kids have never seen such a thing, but that's what we used back in the day. We have an ad for Answer Racing on the next page. Uh, Answer, now Answer, you know, pretty much just a gear company. They don't do a whole lot else, but originally they started as a, a hard parts company before they were into uh, gear to any great extent. Uh, their bars were probably their first big major uh, major product. And now they weren't aluminum bars, they were steel bars. You got to figure uh, stock bars in the 80s were pretty mild steel most of the time. They're pretty crappy, junky things. The first time you dropped the bike, you'd bend them. And uh, Answer... You know, pretty much, pretty much made a name for itself building some like higher quality steel bars uh, before they came out with. Uh, they were the first ones to have the fat bars in 1991, I think. The Pro Taper bar um, was like a huge revelation at the time, and Answer's always been at the, on the kind of cutting edge of uh, bar technology and what have you. But here you get you get a silencer that silencers are a big thing too. A lot of times back in the day, you might run a stock pipe. It was common to run a stock pipe and just replace just the silencer because uh, the stock silencer on some bikes, you know, for many years were steel. And even later, the, the aluminum ones, uh, some of them weren't easily rebuildable. And it was just um, these answer uh, silencers. I ran many of them on bikes over the years, and they were a very popular upgrade uh, for many years. Next up, we have a guide to two-stroke oil. And my sponsor, Blenzol, is at the lower left for castor oil. 
Uh, thank you again to Blinzall for sponsoring the stuff I do here. But you have all kinds of brands. Bell Ray. I never ran Bell Ray personally. Um, I've always, I for my two strokes, I've always loved uh, castor oil. I usually ran um, like a Maxima or Blenzol or something like that. Or also, um, for many years, I ran HP2. That was like my go-to in the 90s. So um, I, I don't know. I didn't use all these brands. I've actually never had any problem with any oil, to be honest. As long as you, you know, ran good quality stuff, it wasn't a problem, in my opinion. So. On the next page here, we have a, some ads for uh, Weis, uh, Weisco, or some people would say Wisco. I, I think it's Weisco. Uh, and again, it's funny you read all this stuff in the magazines, uh, and you kind of do your own your own pronunciation of it. Uh, you don't back certainly back in the '80s, you didn't have anybody on television, you know, doing ads, so you didn't know how the brand was actually said. So I've run plenty of Weisco pistons over the years. You hear all kinds of funny things where some people swear by them. I'd hear people say, "Oh, they crack," and this and that and the other, but. Um, I never had any problems with them personally, so uh, I've certainly run plenty of them over the years. Trailborg Tires. Uh, this was a, a brand that I always thought of as, like, if you wanted spiked tires, you know, like uh, with metal screws in it for riding in the snow and the ice and stuff, you'd run Trailborg. Um, I'm not sure where they're from. They're, I think they're a Scandinavian company, but um, they were, I assume they're still around. I don't even know anymore. Who knows? Back issues. I have all these issues for MXA. I wish you could still get these. It's, it sucks that... Uh, they don't have all this stuff online for everybody. You know, I, I wouldn't mind scanning them, but it takes it takes a long time. And, of course, they probably pissed off if I put their entire catalog online. <laughs> uh, in the showcase section, this is in the days before uh, eBay and the Internet. You'd go back here to the showcase section if you needed something. You'd look for one of these stuff, things on the left here. I remember combing through here looking for uh, somebody to call about the, a transmission for my 83, 480 when it blew. Um, you're trying to find some of these. Uh, small little ads and uh, what have you for obscure companies or even like junkyards or something. They'd always be a kind of stuff you'd find back there. On page 78 here, we're getting towards the end, is a, a cartoon. Um, I don't even know uh, who the hell uh, Bluff Dakar is. Um, this is kind of funny. This may be the only time I've ever remember seeing a cartoon like this in motocross action. It was certainly nothing they stuck with, just as well in my opinion, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, you have an ad for O'Neill here on the right. Uh, some of this O'Neill gear is pretty good looking. I like the the stuff with uh, the big Honda wing on it. It's pretty cool. The pants aren't bad looking. Again, O'Neill's maybe a year or two away from uh, really kind of taking off, in my opinion. They came out with some really good stuff, maybe 86, 87 year. This 85 stuff, very mediocre. Really, the only gear that I think is really great in 85 is JT. Everything else is meh. It gets a big meh for me. Um, those pants on the right are just goofy looking, especially the Yamaha one's terrible. It's not, not my cup of tea, to be honest. Here on page 80, we have an ad for Terry Cable. Uh, stock cables were not great, you know, particularly back in the 80s. And a lot of times you'd run these Terry Cables or, you know, higher quality stuff, um, you know, replace your throttle or your brake or whatever else. Scott, Scott uh, glasses, Scott sunglasses. I've always been bummed out. I, I wear prescription glasses, always have my entire life. I've been wearing them since I was like three. I'm blind as a bat. So I never got the opportunity to wear like cool Oakley blades. I was always so jealous of my buddies had Oakleys and, uh, you know, cool trick sunglasses and stuff. So I never got to experience that. Uh, so I was always a little bit jealous of these ads. And then you have an ad here on um, one of the last pages here for Access Sport. Uh, again, Access Sport was, I believe, started a year before this. Um, by Jim Hale. He had opened up the U.S. operation at Axo Sport USA, and he was just kind of getting going here. The first brand, I mean, the first products they did that really kind of took off with those plastic gloves, the Series 29 gloves. And uh, this stuff is very mediocre, in my opinion. It is, look at the turtleneck, the terry collar turtleneck. And why do we, how, why do we ride in sweaters back in the 80s? I don't know. Uh, the, again, Axo would kind of take off a year or two after this. This was early days, and they really hadn't really got hit their, uh, their groove yet. Great berm shot. I used to love these uh, 
MXA berm shots or crash and burns in uh, dirt bike. Uh, some poor kid getting ejected off of his, uh, looks like a KX80. Uh, really doesn't look like a real pleasant crash. <laughs> I don't know if he, I guess he cased this jump and maybe hit the other guy. I don't know, but he's getting ejected pretty strongly. Now, Axo Sport here on the right, their boots though, their gear, not really kind of taken off yet, but their boots were kind of their, their mainstays. Again, I said they started as a boot company out of Italy, and their boots were actually really great high-end stuff. I've had several pairs of Axo boots over the years. I love them. They're uh, really good stuff. I still have a set of the Axo uh, Turbo RCs down in my garage uh, from like 91 or 92, the like Bradshaw-looking ones in uh, white and pink and blue, and they were great boots. Um, they I always thought they didn't have the same feel of like an Alpine Stars. They were a little, the leather was a little stiffer, and you didn't hit the same feel. I, I grew to love Alpine Stars later, although I don't know that they provided as much ankle protection. They gave me a lot better feel, uh, but Axo stuff was really great. If you look at the price, $139. Again, that's pretty expensive. That's like a four, five, six hundred dollars in, in modern money, so it's not cheap. And here we've reached the end. On the back, we have an um, ad for uh, Nissan's four-wheel drive truck. Uh, you can see prominently it says the name is Nissan, but that is because uh, prior to this, Nissans were called Datsuns here in the U.S. They were always Nissan. Nissan was the parent company in Japan. When Nissan first came over in the late 60s here in the U.S., the Japanese had kind of a poor reputation. People were thinking of their stuff as junk. Uh, they had, you know, obviously coming out of World War II, they'd had a many, many years, tough years there. And uh, people kind of underestimated the Japanese. And their early offerings weren't great. They were really not what we were looking to drive here in the U.S. at the time. So they, they called them Datsuns. And then in the early days, it became, you know... Datsun by Nissan. You find it at your Nissan dealer. And then I think 84, maybe 85 was the first year they actually transitioned just to Nissan. I would love to have this truck now. This is actually a great looking truck. Good truck. Man, I wish they still made little small trucks like this. Uh, I, I sell, not aware, I sell uh, vehicles for a living. I sell Buicks and GMC, GMC trucks. And even the small trucks are big. And they're all jacked up in the air. And you can't get a small little low rider truck anymore to put your bike in the back of. So I lament it. But these were cool trucks. And I'm sure Nissan sold about 4 million of them. So we've reached the end here. Thanks for sticking with me. I hope you've uh, enjoyed this look back at motocross action in 1985. Uh, like I said, I've done some others as well. I've done at least one other motocross action, I think, and I did the complete Inside Motocross series. You can also find the PDFs on them on my website as well. If you go to the motocrossvault.com, uh, you can find a lot of this stuff in uh, PDF form if you want to read it. And uh, again, like, share, subscribe. I certainly appreciate all the support everybody gives me here at the channel. And until we meet again, keep the rubber side down. Peace.